Amen and amen. Thank you so much for sharing that beautiful song about the goodness of God. If you have your Bible with you today, I want to invite you to turn with me to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 8, verse number 1. Romans 8, 1. And uh, as you're turning there, I want to say thank you uh, for allowing me to be here today. Um, thank you, Brother Henry. Brother Henry, if I'm not mistaken, you came in 1993, and I left in 1994. So um, you, you have endured, my friend, and so I am so proud to know you and know of your faithfulness for 30 years here. And also Cliff, I mean, I, you know, as a young kid, I looked up to Cliff, and uh, it's so nice to see you flourishing here and being faithful in your church, too. So thank you so much, and to you, my friends at First Baptist, thank you for letting me be here today. I, before we read Romans 8, 1, I, I want us to pray for two things. One, I want us to pray for Brother Jacob, because he's traveling. And uh, the other thing I'd like for you to join me in praying for is a young man named Eli. Eli is filling in for me today at, at Grace Baptist Church, and uh, Eli is going to Mississippi College in the fall and he is exploring a call to ministry and so today he's getting his opportunity okay so I want you to pray for Eli because I texted him early this morning and he said I'm about to throw up so <laughs> so I, I hope that he doesn't do that on my pulpit at least uh, we have some restrooms he can do that in but uh, but nonetheless I want us to pray for them Hopefully by now you're in Romans chapter 8, and we'll read verse 1 in just a moment. But as you're in Romans 8, verse 1, there are three words that I want to give you on this Lord's Day that will guide us as we meditate on this wonderful, wonderful verse. And I'm a little different than most preachers. I give you the verses, and the um, not only the verses, but the points up front. Y'all okay with that? Here are the three things that I want you to know. The first thing is the word shift. The word shift. The second word is the word security. And the third word is the word savior. So shift, security, and savior. And let's go to our savior now and pray and ask him to bless the reading of his word. And we'll also pray for Brother Jacob and also for Eli. And then I'll read Romans 8 verse 1. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day because we know that it is a day that you have made and so we rejoice in this day and we're glad. We're grateful for the physical life that you've given to us and we're also grateful for the eternal life that you give us in your Son, our beloved Jesus the Christ. Today I pray that you would incline our hearts to your testimonies and away from gain that you'd open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word, that you would unite our hearts to fear you and you alone, and that you would satisfy us today. Satisfy us with your loving kindness as you have most vividly shown us in your son, Jesus Christ. We pray for Brother Jacob and his family. We thank you for the rest that you've given him this week. Pray for his safe travels on the way home. We also pray for Eli, that you would give him courage and confidence to stand and to tell the people the truth from your word. Bless now the reading of your word. That's our prayer, and we make it in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans chapter 8, 
verse number one. This is God's word. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen and amen. May God bless the reading of his word and may he add his eternal benefit to our meditation on it on this Lord's day. Well, I have to tell you that I am very grateful to be here with you today to fill in for Brother Jacob in his stead. But I must confess to you that I'm filled with uh, two diametrically opposed emotions. One, I'm very excited. It's been 15 years since I've been with you on a Sunday morning. So I'm excited to see your faces and hug your necks and shake your hands. But at the same time, I'm a bit apprehensive. I'm apprehensive because I don't know what to preach. It's a one-shot wonder. You just come in one time and you leave that afternoon. Now, Brother Jacob said that I could preach two hours. He said that if I preach two hours, you would forgive me because I'm leaving. And you would be grateful for him because he doesn't do it. But you pray for me, we're not going two hours, y'all all right? As I pondered and prayed, though, I landed on Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Because Romans chapter 8, verse 1 reflects a common experience that all of us as believers live. Simultaneously, we believe the gospel, yet we struggle with guilt. We believe the gospel of our Lord. We believe in the life of Christ. We believe in the death of Christ. We believe in the resurrection of Christ. We believe in the ascension of Christ. We believe in his return one day. We believe all this work has done something of eternal significance for us as sinners. His life was yielded. His life yielded perfect obedience to God's law. And so today, as a believer of the gospel, by his incredible grace, we stand before God obedient, even though we didn't render the obedience. We look at the death of Christ and we see that something was done about our disobedience and our unrighteousness in his death. Namely, that he took the consequences upon himself and he died for it. That death was owed to you and to me and yet Christ is the one who did that. We believe that he was buried. The scripture tells us that he was buried. We believe that on the third day he rose from the dead, that the Father looked down at the work of Jesus in his life and death and gave heavenly approval to that work by raising him from the dead. And so now we look at an empty tomb as the assurance, the blessed assurance that we just sang that Jesus has covered us. We believe in the ascension of Jesus, that he left the earth and that as the scriptures tell us, he's sitting at the right hand of God the Father. And that from that place, he is praying for you and praying for me this morning. What a blessed thought. 
To know that our Lord is interceding for us even right now. And the only thing that's yet to come in this wonderful gospel message that we believe is that Jesus will return to the earth one day. He will right all wrongs. He will eradicate sin from the earth. He will renew and glorify our bodies and we will spend eternity with Him. This is the good news that we have come to believe and come to trust as believers of the gospel. Yet, we still struggle with guilt. It seems to be a common experience. Regret, shame, hiding, avoidance, or even justifying our actions. I want you to look with me at Romans chapter 7 verse 19 and see that your experience and my experience are not different than the experience of Paul. He says in chapter 7 verse 19, for I do not do the good I want. Can we pause right there? I do not do the good that I want to do. Is that part of your testimony? I want to do good. But notice the rest of the verse. It says, But the evil I do not want to do is what I keep doing. This is a believer saying this. That there is this internal struggle within our hearts after we've come to treasure the gospel of Jesus that we still deal with this experience which is common of guilt and shame. So now in chapter 7 verse 24 he says what I think every truly converted person says. What a wretched man that I am. Who can deliver me from this body of sin? And then you have that glorious truth in verse 25 where he says, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ my Lord. You see, Jesus is our Savior. Amen and amen. But Jesus is also the place where we go for assurance that we're saved. We do not come to faith in Christ and believe on Him and then leave Him and pursue other things for assurance and confidence in Him. No, we have this internal struggle between guilt and the truth. And what must we do with this guilt and shame? Beloved, we must take it to Christ. So now with that in mind, we look at verse 1 of chapter 8. It says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Do you see how he solves the problem? The problem that you're facing, the problem that I face. Do you see how he concludes that, solves it? He goes back to Jesus. He goes back to Jesus and back to Jesus and back to Jesus first word that I want you to think about with me this morning is that word shift. 
there is a clear shift in verse 1. He says the word, therefore. He is coming out of a, a struggle, but he's going to something brand new and something wonderful. The brand new and wonderful is, he says, there's no condemnation for those in Christ. But how do you get there? How do you get to the place where there's no condemnation? How do you get to the place where there's assurance and certainty? Where there's confidence? How do you get there? And he synthesizes the problem and then he gives us the conclusion by saying, in Christ Jesus. That word therefore is loaded. Do you know what loaded means? Maybe that's just a Mississippi word. It means it's full. I mean, there's seven chapters that come before chapter 8, verse 1. In, in, in chapter 1, if you remember, he says in verse 16, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So there's an unashamedness about the gospel in Paul's life, yet in chapter 7, he's struggling with guilt. He says, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Paul has this robust trust in the gospel in chapter 1. And then we move to chapter 3, verse 21, where he says, But now the righteousness of God has been revealed apart from the law and the prophets, which, by the way, is two-thirds of your Old Testament. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to the righteousness of God, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and are justified freely by His grace as a gift through Jesus Christ. So again, he's... He has this trust, this confidence, this robust heart toward Christ and the gospel in chapter 1 and in chapter 2. Then in chapter 4, the last verse, he says, Jesus was delivered up for our sins. Beloved, do you realize that Jesus does not make any sense at all without the context of sin? Why do you call the gospel the good news? It's only good news because there's bad news. Namely, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So the guilt and the shame and the regret and the consequences are real because your sin is real. And he says in 425, Jesus was delivered for our sin. Bless his name. The very next phrase in verse 25 says, He was raised for our justification. He was raised for our justification. That means our hiding our sin and our guilt for our sin and the way that we justify our sin by blaming other people and blaming the circumstances we're in. All of these things find resolution in Christ. Then in chapter 5, verse 1, he says, 
Now that we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Question, if I've got peace with God, why do I not feel peace with God? Why is there an ongoing struggle with this thing called guilt and shame? same chapter, chapter 5, verse 8, you have one of the most beautiful verses in all of the scripture. It says, but God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Do you see the point at which he died for you? He died for you when you were good. Hello? He didn't die for you when you were good. He died for you when you were trying to be good. Hello? He didn't die for you when you were trying to be good. He died for you when you were a sinner. Jesus doesn't make any sense without the context of sin. And if he has reconciled us to his son, to, to himself, through the death of his son, how much more will he give us life through his son? But with all that in mind, all that baggage, it's, it's full, it's loaded. He says, what a wretched man that I am. I want to do good, I don't do good. The bad's right there. I seem to be doing bad more than good. Like, How do I reconcile this thing? And he says, I'm a wretched man, which is the testimony of any believer. And here's his conclusion. Therefore. That's how you resolve it. The shift in the text is the shift in your life. Therefore, there is now no condemnation in Christ Jesus. And just so we're not confused, there is a difference between condemnation and conviction. Y'all alright? I know I'm new. But can you say the word amen? Or a women? I don't discriminate. There's a difference between condemnation and conviction. And here's the difference. Condemnation leaves you guilty in yourself. It is a work of our enemy. Conviction does not leave you in your guilt. It sends you to the Savior. And it's the work of His Spirit. So the sense of guilt and shame that you currently feel, I'm sure, because you're human, you believe. It mustn't leave you there to wallow in self-pity and self-grief and to try better next time. But it must lead you to Christ. Here's the second word. The word security. Notice verse 1 says, Therefore there is now no condemnation. Condemnation means guilt. Leading to consequences. I want you to imagine something with me. Can you do that for a few moments? 
is that clock right? So it's 1041. I'm probably going to let you out before 11. Amen. I mean, we're going quickly here. You amen me, though. We'll go quicker. I want you to imagine something with me. Is that okay? I want you to imagine a courtroom. What are we imagining together? Courtroom. And in this courtroom, there's a judge. And he or she's sitting up on the bench. There's a prosecutor. Sitting over there with his or her case. There's a defendant, the person accused, and then there's a defending attorney sitting next to the accused. The prosecutor stands up, charges the defendant with specific crimes. They're not general. That wouldn't fly in a court. You know that. They're very specific crimes, and the prosecuting attorney lays out in great detail all of the evidence to prove the charge against the defendant. Once the prosecutor is finished, the defender stands up and the defender distracts, downplays, explains the evidence, gives possible reasons why that the prosecution is incorrect in their conclusions. The defendant, though, sits and waits for what the judge will say based on the evidence and based on the defense. Beloved, that scene is involved with the word condemnation. Because you see, there is a judge, and he is holy and righteous and always does what is right. And there is a prosecutor, the scripture refers to him as the accuser of the brethren in Revelation 12. And the accuser of you and me stands up and lays out irrefutable evidence against you. And as you're sitting there, all of what you're being accused of is true. And so you're waiting. Because you were there. You did those things. You felt those things. You said those things. You experienced those things. And he lays all this out. And you know your guilt. But then your defender, your advocate, the scripture calls him, stands up. And he looks at the judge and he says, I ask you, judge, to throw out this case. Now at this, the prosecutor, Satan, giggles. Didn't you see all this I just laid out? It's irrefutable. This is true. He did it. She did it. And the judge looks at your defender, your advocate, Jesus the Christ, and says, 
On what grounds do I throw out this evidence? And Jesus' response is, I died for it and removed it. There is no condemnation because Jesus took it, died for it, and removed it. So my question to you, beloved, if Jesus took it, died for it, and removed it, why are you still carrying it? There is, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You see? And here's the last word. In this context, the most beautiful word, it's the word Savior. Look at verse 1 with me again. There is, therefore, now no condemnation for those. And a period, right? Look at it. Look at your verse. Is there a period after that? No. It goes on. There is, therefore, now no condemnation, period. No. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So the question now on your mind should be, am I in Christ? Do you remember what Isaiah said in Isaiah 59 verse 2? He says, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear you. So you are either in Christ or you are separated from Christ. If you are in Christ, there is no condemnation. He took it, he died for it, and he removed it from your account. But if you're not in Christ, you will take your consequences. You will live under your condemnation. And you will give your life for it. Do you see? In this thing called Christianity... Trust and treasure the gospel. We certainly live in chapter 7, verse 9, verse 19. I want to do good, but it's right there with me. Who can deliver me? Who can deliver you from this dilemma? And the answer is a resounding Jesus. The Christ. As we look back toward Christ and what he has done, we know that he became our condemnation for us. As we look forward to the time where we leave this life and go to the next, we know that there is no condemnation because he has removed it. Beloved, Beloved, this Christ is where you are saved. And this Christ is where you are kept saved. Now how do we apply this? I'm going to suggest three ways quickly. 
the first takeaway is you need to know the difference between conviction and condemnation. You need to know the difference between the two. One of them leaves you in yourself. The other one elevates you and takes you to Christ. Know the difference. Second application is that you need to take comfort and find security in Christ's work of removal. And then lastly, you need to trust Christ. You need to trust Him. You need to trust Him and then live a repentant life. Finding in Him salvation and the assurance of that salvation. May God bless the preaching of His Word. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for this day and the wonderful privilege you've given us to be together. We thank you for Romans chapter 8, verse 1, and I pray that you would apply it to our hearts, that you would grant us light to see and faith to believe, and we pray this in Christ's name, amen.